I have a privilege of having one of our elders bring the word this morning. So I'm going to invite Brian, if you would come up. Uh, I'd just like to pray over you as we open the word today. Would you join me in praying? Lord Jesus, uh, may you speak your word to us through Brian this morning. God, as I pray for myself, I pray for him. Uh, may he decrease this morning and you increase. May we not remember words that he says, but may we remember words that you speak to us through him. May we hear your voice today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks, Bryce. This is out of uh, Mark 14, verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and to kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wage and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Jesus said, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve went to the chief priests to betray Jesus. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for being here. Thank you for being present. Um, I thank you for your word that is true, um, not only uh, to the generation that this was written to, but to us, Father, uh, that you are still alive and speaking to us, that you still want us to know you, um, in a very personal way, not only just in our lives, but in our homes, but in our community and in this church. Uh, Father, I pray that you would just be present and transform us into your image here and now. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, welcome. My name's uh, Brian. I, I'm, it's my privilege to, to serve at this church. Um, if you don't know, my wife, Bree, um, is over there smoking hot. She's awesome. Uh, <laughs> She's incredible. She helps keep me humble. Um, it's, it's also a privilege and an honor to work in Randolph County as the area director for Young Life. Um, and I, I love, we, Bree and I moved here what, almost five years ago and uh, have made it our home. So thank you uh, that I, I get to be here today. And I'm so excited to teach on this passage in Mark 14. It's such a fun, um, incredible passage that's so challenging. But before I do that, um, I want to share with you all this video. 
Um, it's a video from the Bible Project. It's one of my favorite nonprofit organizations, and they're covering this theme on generosity. And I think it pairs really well with the story in Mark, Mark 14. And so before um, I get into any of that, I want us uh, to watch, I think it's like five minutes long, um, this video on the theme of generosity. So Chris, are you able to pull that up? Perfect. Imagine your friend invites you to a party. You arrive and there's lots of people, decorations, food and drink. There's enough for everyone. When you're hosted by someone that generous, you don't have to worry about your needs. You can just enjoy yourself and focus on the people around you. Yeah, that's what a good host wants for her guests. And this is the picture of the world that we find in the Bible. Creation is an expression of God's generous love. He's the host, and humans are his guests in a world of opportunity and abundance. And we're called to keep the party going, to spread his goodness. This is a beautiful picture. But it's not the way people experience the world. Rather, we find a world of scarcity and struggle, not abundance. And Jesus grew up in that kind of world. Under military occupation, people losing their land or families to debt and poverty. And yet, he would say things like this. Look at the birds. They don't store up food for themselves, yet they have enough. Or consider the wildflowers. They're beautiful and abundant, and they don't stress about their existence. And you all should live that way, too. But surely Jesus knew that things don't always work out. I mean, sometimes there really isn't enough. And Jesus did experience poverty firsthand, but he viewed the world through the story of the Hebrew scriptures, which claimed that our scarcity problem isn't caused by a lack of resources. Rather, the problem is our mindset that God can't be trusted. Maybe God's holding out on me. Maybe there isn't enough, and maybe I need to take matters into my own hands. And once we're deceived into that mindset of scarcity, we can justify the impulse to take care of me and mine before anyone else. And that leads to envy, anger, violence, and a world where it seems like there's not enough. The party's over, it's turned into a battleground. But God wants humans to experience his generosity, and so he chooses one people, the family of Abraham, and he promises to give them the abundance that he wants for everybody else. God will provide what they need. All they have to do is trust his generosity. And through them, the whole world will see how generous the host really is. But that's not what happens. Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, enter a land of abundance, and they promptly forget the host who gave it to them. They act like it's all theirs, and like there's not enough. And it leads to war and Israel's self-destruction. If I were the host of this party, I think I'd just give up. But God doesn't give up. What he does is surprising. He gives another gift. Another gift? Yeah, but this gift is different. What God gives is himself. All right, and Jesus, the host himself, comes to join in on the spoiled party. And notice, Jesus lives with the conviction that there is enough and that our generous host can be trusted. His mindset of abundance allowed him to live sacrificially and generously, even towards his enemies. And Jesus called his followers to trust in God's abundance like him. And that's why he said things like, sell your possessions and give to the poor, or don't worry about your life. He's inviting us to live by a different story, one that is built on trust in God's goodness and love. But living generously doesn't mean life is going to go well. I mean, look at Jesus. He was betrayed by his friends, and he suffered. 
And this was no surprise to Jesus. He knew that people would take advantage of his generosity. In fact, that was his plan. Really? Yeah, think about it. Jesus knows that we're all hopelessly deceived by this lie that there's not enough. Yeah, that lie needs to be defeated. And so that's what Jesus was doing when he gave us the gift of his life. Jesus' death was the ultimate expression of God's generous love. Yeah, God's love can turn death into life and scarcity back into abundance. Or as the Apostle Paul put it, you know the gift of our Lord Jesus the Messiah, that even though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And Jesus called his followers to live like the real party has begun. Yes, he called it the kingdom of God. And our invitation to this party is yet another gift, the personal presence of God's own spirit that can teach us how to trust the generosity of the host just like Jesus did. And when you believe there's enough, you start seeing opportunities for generosity everywhere with our time and money, our attention. Yes, one of the most important ways that we can experience the abundance of God's new creation is sharing with others because of our trust that God is the generous host. Awesome. Thanks. I, I love the Bible Project. If you've never heard of them, I would invite you to go check them out. They have a ton of themes that they trace throughout all of Scripture. They have a podcast that's really, really good. They go through every book of the Bible and kind of trace through themes. Um, it, it's incredible. I use it all the time uh, with Young Life Kids, with my own personal uh, studies. I've, I use them to go through the Bible um, in a year, which was really, really good. Um, but I love that theme because I think it... it traces so well with, its, with this, um, the story in Mark that we're about to look at. This, this woman who pours this um, expensive perfume all over Jesus, and nobody understands what is going on and why Jesus would ever say this is a good thing, except, except Jesus himself, who understands what this woman is doing. And so I want to invite us to sit back, to breathe and to look at the scripture afresh. Before we do that, I want us to, re- to remember a little bit. We've been going through the, the book of Mark. Um, Bryce has been inviting us to look at the book of Mark uh, for a long time. It's been great. I love it. I love going through an entire book of the Bible and just reading it. It's so good. Uh, Mark was written that we would sit down and read it. And I just want to remind us of what has been happening Because there's been a tension that has been building throughout the last few chapters of Mark leading up to this specific story. In chapter 11, Jesus rides into Jerusalem. People are laying down uh, branches and singing Hosanna. They think that he is the Messiah, come to rescue them, only to find out that that's not Jesus' intention. Jesus marches straight into the temple in chapters 12 and 13 and proclaims judgment on Israel's lack of trust in God. And last week, he he talks about, Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple, which leaves everybody scratching their head. This This isn't what's supposed to be happening. This isn't who the Messiah is supposed to be. People are confused. People are angry. And Mark is showing us that there is a tension building, and it's been building for a long time. The Pharisees haven't liked what Jesus has been saying, and this tension is building that 
Mark is trying to push us towards the cross. Mark has um, this really unique take. I, I love this. One of my professors told me this. Um, he actually, he made us sit down uh, with a group of, of friends and we read through the book of Mark in one sitting. It took about three hours. Uh, and he, he reminded us, he said, look at every time Mark says the word immediately. It's everywhere. It's written 41 times in the book of Mark. 70% of the times that Greek word um, is used, it's used in the book of Mark. Mark is constantly reminding us, he's pushing us forward to the cross. Immediately Jesus goes to heal a woman. Immediately Jesus goes to meet a man uh, with leprosy. Immediately Jesus goes to cast out a demon. Immediately Jesus goes to Jerusalem. Until we get to this story in which Mark pauses to take a break before we hit the cross, Jesus' betrayal, to remind us who God is and what he calls us to do, the story he calls us to live into. And he does it through this beautiful picture, this beautiful story of a woman and her incredible sacrifice. In fact, I would challenge you, I'm, I'm being serious, I would challenge you, I did this with my campaigner group. Uh, Shirley probably remembers this. <laughs> it took about three and a half hours because we were with high school students, but it was the campaigners, they never forget. We literally uh, sat down and I was like, all right, y'all, got double stuffed Oreos. I'm like, we're reading through the entire book of Mark tonight. And they kind of looked at me and thought I was joking. Uh, and we literally did it and it was so cool. Um, I don't think a lot of us, we maybe read through like one Maybe a chapter, maybe, you know, sections. It's so fun to look through an entire book and read an entire book the way the audience that Mark was writing to probably originally heard it, to see from start to finish what Mark is trying to tell us about who the person of Jesus is. I would challenge you this month, do it by yourself. Read it out loud. Grab your spouse. Grab your children. Grab friends. Read the book of Mark. We've still got a few more weeks to go. I'm still enjoying it. I hope you all are too. Uh, I would challenge you to seriously do this. And you will begin to see the immediately, the immediateness in which Jesus is thrust towards the cross on our behalf. Mark is constantly pushing us forward to this tension that Jesus isn't really the Messiah Israel thought he would be. And instead he would take our place at the cross. And so in between this boiling tension of the Pharisees hating Jesus, people not understanding who he is, and Judas about to betray, betray Jesus, we get the story of this woman. And I want to invite us in to that story now. It says, if you want to um, open your Bibles and look at Mark 14, I would, I would encourage you to do that. It says this in Mark 14, 1. Now the Passover... And the feast of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. I think big pictures um, are important in order to understand the message of an author. And so I want to ask you, why, why does Mark include in this the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread were only two days away? I want to ask question, uh, two questions right now. Does anyone, what is the Passover? Does anyone know? Feel free to shout out, yell, anything. What is the Passover? Like 
They smeared blood on the door so they wouldn't die. Yeah, that's great. Did I see a hand over here? Anyone? That's essentially it. The Passover was a celebration. Remember, Israelite, uh, they are under the captive of Egypt, captivity of Egypt. Uh, God has sent Moses to free them, and nothing that, that God does convinces Pharaoh to actually free his people. And so God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh in in one last attempt and says, I will take away your firstborn son son, unless you let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. (laughs) He's already hardened his heart at this point. And so God says, all right. And so he goes to the Israelites. Moses does and say, take a lamb and slaughter it and put its blood over your doorposts. And the destroyer is going to pass over your house and allow your firstborn son to live. Anyone who didn't have that blood over the door, their firstborn son in Egypt, was killed. What about the festival of unleavened bread? Does anyone know what the festival of unleavened bread was? It's directly related to the story as well. Yeah, the bread, without, without yeast. Yeah. Exactly. Literally, so the firstborn children were, were killed, and uh, Pharaoh says, get out of here. I'm, I'm setting you free. This is it. That was done. That was the breaking point. And so Moses tells the people, hurry, get up and go, right before they're about to cross uh, the Red Sea or the Reed Sea. And they don't have time to prepare actual yeast for their bread. And so these two festivals was a reminder that their story was rooted in the Exodus. Their story was rooted in God freeing them, that God is a a provider of abundance, of generosity, that God not only just sets them free, but gives them provision out of slavery. And so the Israelites were to come back to Jerusalem. People are about to gather for this festival, kind of like, almost like Christmas, um, for almost eight days, and they would celebrate their story as Israelites, their story of the Exodus, God's chosen people freed from the bondage of slavery, of spiritual evil. And the Exodus is a story about trust, provision, and revelation. I'll say this, I... um, we got back really late last night, and uh, Friday was a really tough day for me. Uh, I didn't get to create any slides, so sorry for you visual learners. That's me. Um, <laughs> so just try and follow along. Um, the Exodus is a story about trust, provision, and revelation. Trust, because they had to believe that this God that they didn't really know, but this guy Moses who showed up and started doing incredible signs and wonders, could actually free them from the grips of Pharaoh. Provision because they had no actual way of sustaining themselves in the wilderness, right? They were, they were a people that literally left everything they had. Uh, some of the, the Egyptians gave them some cattle and some other things, uh, but this was supposed to be a short trip through the wilderness that ended up taking them 40 years because of their sin and rebellion. But they had to trust that God would be the one that provided. They had to trust that this God that they had no idea about would actually provide for them. And revelation, because at this point, they hadn't reached Mount Sinai. But when they reach Mount Sinai, God reveals his character and nature for the first time to the Israelites in a covenant, 
in which the Israelites fail miserably at and sends them into exile again, <laughs> in which they have to return to rebuild, um, sorry, rebuild Jerusalem. But they're getting together to celebrate the fact that God has rescued them and will one day rescue them again. Mark is specifically outlining this and reminding us that the festival that is supposed to be pointing to Jesus, Israel is totally missing out on. (laughs) They're totally missing out on that Jesus is the Messiah who has come to rescue them, free them from sin, provide a way for them to experience true, rich life. And he is the revelation of God in fullness. (laughs) In fullness. It was one of the largest festivals, almost like Christmas for us, a time in which we would give gifts to people, we would get together and celebrate it. It's it's one of the times that we remember from children, being a a child, um, from childhood, that we would remember that this is a special day. That was what it meant to celebrate the Passover and, and the festival of unleavened bread. They would clear literally their fridges of all yeast, They would get rid of food. I mean, this was a big deal. It wasn't just like, all right, we'll get rid of it and then go to the supermarket. Those didn't really exist. It was, we're getting rid of this because we trusted that God did this for our ancestors and he will do it for us now. Every year, it was a reminder that the God we serve provides in miraculous ways that don't make sense to the rest of the world. They got together as a community to celebrate who God was, what he has done for them, and what he promises to do. And Mark is pointing out that Jesus' death, the death that he's about to die, is in the middle of this exact festival. And so as we, we, we look at this, we see there is a tension. Israel's supposed to be celebrating the providential nature of God, his ability to provide, and yet they are about to reject the exact provision that God is providing. The spiritual uh, leaders have already decided, hey, they want to kill Jesus and they want to do it in secret because they know that the crowd that is coming to Jerusalem, that's the crowd Jesus has been loving. Those are the outsiders, some of the people that Jesus has healed, some of the people that Jesus has freed, the people he has baptized. Those are the people he has been ministering to. And so in their minds, they're like, we have to do this quietly or else they might rebel, and then Rome will come down on us, and we don't want that. And so they're they're trying to work out, how do we do this? How do we take care of this Jesus guy? And all the while, Mark points out, he stops, allows us to take a breath before we move to the betrayal and the cross. This beautiful story of this woman. And so we see in verse three, while he was at Bethany, that was kind of the place that he retreated to because he wasn't really welcome in Jerusalem. Could you imagine a God unwelcomed in his own city? I mean, we we laugh at that, like, yeah, that was crazy. But if we're being real, man, how many places and how many times in my own life do I not allow God to come in and to transform and change that aspect of my life? That's a tough question we probably can't answer here and now. But I would invite you to. It's easy to pass over that and say, well, that was them. I would never do that. (laughs) We do it every day. Not allow Jesus to enter into the most dark places of our lives, 
the hardest things that we're going through because that gets messy. Can God really do that? And so while he was in Bethany, reclining at a table at a house of a man named Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard, and she broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Mark wants us to realize that this is a very expensive uh, perfume. This was about a year's wage. I mean, this is expensive, especially at a, at a time when women didn't really work. This probably wasn't the woman's right to actually do this. This might have been a family heirloom. I mean, most people didn't just have a year's wage of like, how many of you have a $40,000 or $50,000 bottle of perfume laying on your dresser you're ready to smash and pour on someone like <laughs> that's ridiculous right but that's what this woman does like this is shocking absolutely shocking this woman had no right to do this but what john points out in the gospel of john is this is mary uh, the sister of martha and the sister and the brother of uh, lazarus and this is the person lazarus was who jesus just raised from the dead Simon the leper was probably healed by Jesus. And so Jesus is surrounded by a group of people who have literally seen him work in miraculous ways. Heal and provide in ways in which they've never heard or seen before. I mean, a leper healed of leprosy doesn't just happen. Someone raised from the dead doesn't just happen on a daily basis. Woman, uh, women who were, were unclean, pronounced clean by Jesus, that doesn't happen. Yet Jesus did it. Jesus was surrounded in a room full of tax collectors and sinners and broken people in which he has healed and restored, yet they don't see and understand what Jesus is doing and what this woman is doing to Jesus. Mary is mentioned three times in the four gospels. And every single time she's mentioned, she's mentioned at the feet of Jesus. What an incredible way to be remembered as. Like, man, I, I hope if, if I ever make it into church history, I don't know. But like, when people tell my story, I hope, right? It's at the feet of Jesus. I hope it's like, man, that guy loved and served Jesus. Mary will forever be remembered as the woman who served at the feet of Jesus. And I love that. Mark literally fumbles over words. Like, he, he's really simple in the way he writes the gospel of Mark. But here he kind of like slows down and he uses like five or six different adjectives that you wouldn't naturally pair next to each other to explain just how extravagant this perfume is. It depends on what translation you might have. Um, mine says, came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. Mark wants us to realize the extent at which this woman recognizes that she is lavishly wasting something that she shouldn't be lavishly wasting. This was scandalous. And I love the response of the room who has literally been healed, brought back into right relationship. Some of these, most of them are disciples of Jesus, people who have been invited into his family, who have lived with him, watched him worship, watched him love and to serve people. And yet it says in verse four, some of those present, it's not just Judas. Some means more than one. Some who were present indignantly to one another said, why this waste of perfume? 
It could have been sold, right? It could have been used for maybe supporting Jesus' ministry. It could have been used as a gift to the poor. It could have been used to gain support for Jesus as this big festival is about to happen. You know, like there are so many things that could have been used for and they're rationalizing in their head. Why are we wasting this? Jesus, we could use this to prop up your ministry. Do you see the danger of that statement? The danger is that they are thinking rationally. In no way does the breaking of this nard make sense unless Jesus was about to die and there was no more ministry to do. There was nothing more that Jesus had used for this for. I think so many times in our lives we're like, well, how do, how do we rationalize the use of our gifts? Oh, we, we can give this away or that away or I give 10% of my money away or I give 15% of my money away. It's all great. It's good to be generous. But the importance of this woman's gift wasn't just that she was generous. It was that she recognized who Jesus was and did something in a response out of her recognition of seeing him as a true Messiah. The danger of wielding gifts as commodities to be used for our personal gain is incredibly dangerous. It is our job as followers of Jesus to align ourselves in the will of God and to use our gifts for God's kingdom. And sometimes, friends, it just flat out doesn't make sense. <laughs> it just doesn't make sense. Unless we're seeing Jesus and he, we are in deep, personal, incredible relationship with him. Uh, concern for the poor was a huge part of the Passover. Like a huge part. So most people, kind of like Christmas, um, during Christmas, a lot of times we buy gifts for people. Uh, we help homeless, right? We, we support families who don't typically have enough money to give gifts to their children. Like that is a part of Christmas, right? Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> uh, that was also a part of Passover. A part of Passover was we are gonna supply out of the goodness of what God has given us gifts to those who don't have enough. That was a part of this. And so they're literally looking at this and they're like, this is all wrong. This woman, by their standard, if Jesus was not there, this woman probably could have been stoned to death. Like so many other times in the gospel um, of Mark or any of the other gospels. Yet, Jesus says it's a good thing. When are times in your life that you've experienced incredible and extreme generosity? Incredible and extreme generosity that doesn't really make sense. I've got, I've got two that I want to share. Um, the first one um, was when my young life leader, I was a junior in high school, right? I'd been to church um, most of my life up through middle school. I'd kind of walked away from the church. Um, I didn't really understand or see why I needed Jesus. Um, I'd never really been told about sin or the cross. I'd just kind of been, I was kind of a cultural Christian. So I kind of walked away from the faith. Um, and one of my Young Life leaders, an old guy who's like 50-year-old insurance salesman, and he, uh, he came to my football games, he hung out with me, um, and one day after club, he handed me a check and said, hey, I want you to come to Young Life camp with me. I was like, sure. He's like, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be the greatest adventure of your life. Your friends are going. It's going to be incredible. 
I was like, sign me up, awesome. I didn't have the money to pay for it. He handed me a check, I took it to my parents, and he helped me fundraise to get to camp. He gave me a $100 check. $100 is not a lot of money. That summer, I gave my life to Christ for the first time ever. <laughs> I mean, $100 is not big in the grand scheme of earthly wealth and possessions. Yet in my life of eternity, that $100 gift was the biggest gift of generosity I think I've ever received besides Jesus. Someone literally giving me something that's saying, you're worth, you're worth it to hear the gospel. $100, a small gift, yet led to eternal change. Man, I'll never forget that. <laughs> never forget it. Uh, two years later, I became a Young Life leader, um, and I... I knew this kid, his name was Nick Zaccone. He's one of my best friends to this day. Uh, and same thing, he came from a really poor background. And so um, I didn't have a lot of money, but I knew I wanted to get Nick to camp. And so I gave him a check. I said, Nick, I want you to come to camp. Um, and he met the Lord that year. Incredible. I mean, just an awesome kid. On, on the bus ride home, we left at like 11 o'clock from Rockbridge. And we're driving home and he's like, Brian, what should... I gave him his, uh, his first Bible. And I said, hey, you should read like, you know, the book of John. The book of John's a really good place to start. And so he came back, it was like 2 a.m. He's like, I'm, I'm done, what do I read next? <laughs> I was like, I like this kid. This kid's gonna be my friend. Uh, and so we get back in that school year, we start club with, with Young Life. Uh, and he brings one of his friends. He is, I think, a, a junior at this point. Um, and he brought a freshman named Sam. And uh, the first campaigners, <laughs> Sam breaks up with his girlfriend. Uh, Nick's like, this is going bad. He's, he literally steals Nick's keys and drives away. Grand Theft Auto drives away in Nick's car. I see Nick sprinting across the yard. This is after campaign. And he jumps on the hood of the car and he's screaming at Sam as Sam's trying to drive away in Nick's car. And I'm like, one, I, the cops could be calling me. And two, like, Nick is going to be my best friend. Like, that is a kid I want to hang out with. Like, he's literally hanging on to the car screaming as his, his car is being driven away by a freshman in high school. Uh, wild, <laughs> but he did the same thing. Nick worked at Fazoli's. He wanted Sam to know Jesus. He poured his whole life into him, uh, and he, I, I remember watching Nick hand Sam a check of his own money and say, hey man, I want you to come to Young Life Camp with me. And that summer, Sam met the Lord. Like in, incredible acts of generosity that in, in our culture's eyes, like aren't that big, like $100. I mean, we spend that, we can spend that on dinner sometimes. Yet in the, in the scheme of eternity, what God can do with the gifts that don't really make sense to this world, massive. Absolutely massive. It wasn't that my young life leader was just throwing checks at people. My young life leader, he knew. He knew that Jesus told him, hey, you, you need to get this kid Brian to camp. And Jesus did the rest. It was the same with me and Nick. I, I knew that Nick needed to get to camp. I'd been praying over Nick. I'd been seeking after Nick. It was an easy yes because Jesus had told me to do that. And I think we see that same response with Jesus here, with his disciples. In verse six, he says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? What she has done is a beautiful thing. The poor you will always have with you. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them at any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. 
She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. This was done for Jesus's burial. This is the first time in Mark that we see a glimpse of someone even, maybe this is the Messiah, and it's a woman. (laughs) Mark is pointing out that this this Mary, the one who's known for sitting at Jesus's feet, sees something and does something because maybe this Jesus is who he's claiming to be. Maybe he is actually gonna die. Maybe he is gonna be the propitiation for our sins. Maybe he is gonna reconcile us back to God. And so she takes a family heirloom that she has no right of touching and smashes it and pours it over his head. And because of that, her name will live on because of her act of generosity. And we see later on at at the end of this in verse 11, this act is what prompts Judas, the one out of all the disciples who who was taking care of the money. Um, The other gospel authors say that he sometimes took money Uh, from Jesus' ministry. And he's bribed with money to give up Jesus. Generosity doesn't have to be expensive, but it does have to be radical. The kind of generosity that Jesus calls us into as followers of Christ, it doesn't need to be expensive, but it does need to be radical. The cross, Jesus, it wasn't expensive. Like Jesus going and dying on the cross wasn't expensive. He didn't have to raise a bunch of money, build a building, (laughs) create a whole committee and formula and all this stuff. It was a part of God's plan and will. Jesus went to the cross, a poor man with nothing and no friends, but that was God's plan. Not expensive, but absolutely radical. It was radical for God to come down into human flesh and to take our place, right? Like Mark is trying to push us forward and, and for us to just see for a second what it means to be in the kingdom of God, what it means to be a part of Jesus's kingdom, where money doesn't matter. God is the provider of all good things and if his will and purpose is happening, Money isn't gonna stop his kingdom. God doesn't care about 401ks and your salary and your job and all this. I mean, that's a part of of who you are. That is important. But in no way, shape, or form is that needed for God to do what he's gonna do. God didn't need Jesus to get a really good job so that he could go to the cross. He needed Jesus to be faithful, to understand who he was so that he might walk in our place to the cross to bear our burdens. God's righteousness was literally exchanged for our brokenness, not because of wealth, but because of generosity. This is like the heart of the gospel. What it means to see and to love other people is to experience the generosity of God's incredible love for us and look at other people with that same generosity. Do we know and understand what exactly God has done for us? Do you know exactly what God has done for you? I mean, this is a question I ask high school kids. Do you know what God has done for you? Like literally he came down in human flesh to go to a cross and hang and die and be betrayed so that we might be able to have a right relationship with God. On the cross, that was supposed to be us. Those were our sins that we were supposed to bear, yet he bore them for us. 
It doesn't make sense except for the radicalness of God's generosity towards us. I remember um, when I was, man, when Bree and I first got married, she left me at home with Barrett, our, our oldest son. He's over there. Hey, Bear. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I remember Barrett took a nap, <clears throat> and he woke up, and he was crying. And I was like, I don't know how to really get a crying baby. I was a new dad. He was probably three months old or so. Uh, and I'm like, maybe he needs a diaper change. I'm frustrated at this point. And so I go to take off all of his clothes, right? And as I peel off his onesie, it's just a layer of explosion. It's what you call blowout, right? Uh, there, is, uh, there is baby poop everywhere, okay? <laughs> and so I'm taking this off. And all I wanted to do, like, I just wanted my son to stop crying, right? Like, I just wanted to pick him up and hug him. Yeah, if I did that, like all of his dirt would have been on me. I had to take him over to the bath and wash him off and cleanse him. And after that, I was able to pick him up and hug him. And it was such a good hug. I, I, I remember that moment. It was like the first time that ever happened. I picked him up and it was such a fun hug and he stopped crying. And I think a lot of us wonder why, man, why, why doesn't God just like do something or change something? What if he has? What if the cross was his answer? What if God wants to embrace us, except we're so dirty that we can't be embraced unless we have first been washed? Y'all, that is what Mark is trying to point us to, the cross as we move towards this, as we move towards this woman breaking this nard over him and he is clothed in a perfume of a death burial. We are being pushed towards the cross so that we could see that Jesus wants to cleanse us. That is his way of cleansing us so that we might become in right relationship with God. If you have ever asked the question, why doesn't God just do something? Friends, he has. He has. It is on the cross and that is the grace that I have experienced. It's the grace that Bryce has experienced. The elders, uh, people in this church have experienced his grace and love and compassion. And I would invite you today, if you have never considered what it means for Jesus to wash you, that you might be in right relationship with God. I want to create a little space for us to do that. In conclusion, um, there, there's this, I was praying this morning and um, an old hymn came up, Take the World, Give Me Jesus. And it's one of my favorite hymns and it says this. It says, take the world, but give me Jesus. Take the world, but give me Jesus. In his cross, my trust shall be, till with clearer and brighter vision, face to face, my Lord, I see. I love those words because those are the words that Mary so deeply understood. The disciples didn't get it. The other people in that room didn't get it, but Mary understood exactly what she was doing. She was preparing her savior to go to the cross. Friends, I want to um, give us time and space because part of um, following Jesus is responding to what he has done for us. It's responding to him, his incredible love. I want to create a little space. Um, I asked Bryce if it would be okay. We're going to play that hymn from one of my uh, favorite bands. They kind of did a recreation of it. And I just want to allow you to take some time. Maybe if you've, if you've never responded to the cross and what Jesus has done, how he wants to wash us clean that we might stand and be blameless in his sight so that we can have right relationship with God. 
I would challenge you to do that. I want to invite the elders are going to come up and we're, we're going to be over here. If, if you have maybe undealt with brokenness and sin, things that you just, they're eating you up and you haven't talked to anyone about and you're just too ashamed, I want to invite you, come up and, and we would love to pray for you. If you've never responded to the gospel, I would invite you, come up and talk to one of us. If maybe you've been just kind of sitting through church culturally for a long time and you used to follow Jesus and you're not sure what you really are and you want to maybe rededicate yourself to Christ, I would invite you, come and have a conversation with us. If you don't want to do any of that, you just want to sit there, I would invite you. Part of following Jesus is literally responding, just like Mary did. It's an action. She didn't talk about it, she did something. Maybe if you need to have a conversation with your spouse or have a conversation with the Lord about something that, man, is just eating you up inside, something that you haven't forgiven yourself about, you haven't forgiven someone like your spouse about, a friend, a, a child, I would invite you to do that. I'm gonna give us about six or seven minutes to listen to this song and to respond to what God has done, just like Mary did. And after that, we're gonna pray and then we'll, we'll quietly um, leave just as if, if anyone else is responding. So, um, are you able to pull that video up? Thank you. And then uh, Bryce, I would invite you to come up and any of the other elders if you want to just kind of come up. And um, I just want to give us space to respond to who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Let me pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you, man, that we get to hear the incredible story of Mary. Her preparing your death. I thank you that your death is real, that you, you went to the cross for us, and that our response to you should be active, not just so that we can claim to be a Christian, but so we can be in right relationship with you, that you, you so desperately want to pick us up and give us a father hug, a big daddy hug. First, we need to be washed clean. God, I'm, I'm so thankful that that is a free gift that you've already paid for. And I, I just pray that, man, we would think about that incredible gift and respond to it in some way, shape, or form this morning. So, Father, lead us in this time. I pray that your spirit would be present. We pray this in your name. Amen.